Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium in the year 2021. This is episode 117. Today we take a item from the headlines and discuss the recent stimulus package, of which the COVID uh, relief is a part, but not the only part, as our returning interviewee Aida Ramos reminds us. Again, Aida is a uh, professor of economics at the University of Dallas, a Catholic school in Texas, and so we, we take the chance to talk to her about federal spending, U.S. federal spending, our, our specific example, and talk about the nature of the bill. We talk about the general problems with deficits and debts, what they're for, what they're not for, how we've been responsible and irresponsible in using them in the last several decades of American history, that deficits ought to be <laughs> used to address recessions or potentially other problems, and yet we have been running deficits almost continually for the last 40 years. We talk about what she sees as the main problem, you know, using economic, you know, theory, um, understanding to, you know, that in the current United States, the main problem with running up an additional debt is that it incurs additional interest fees for servicing the debt, which squeezes out room in the federal budget for everything else, including things that we would be spending money on responsibly in order to help the economy, in order, in, in particular, to help people who are most vulnerable. Um, many, many points during the discussion, uh, Aida makes reference to a uh, three-martini lunch deduction, as she calls it, um, that was in incorporated in the stimulus bill, which she puts forward as an example of uh, a sort of stimulus, in this case a tax cut, um, that is not um, necessarily helping the least of those. So, yeah, I hope that uh, your January of 2021... 2021 is off to a good start for you, uh, and uh, we're, we're hopefully reaching the end of COVID, and we can get back to, well, whatever life is going to be, because, of course, it never stays the same. So, blessings to all of you, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. So, welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, the first episode of the year 2021, and we are very pleased to welcome back Aida Ramos from the uh, University of Dallas, the economics faculty there. So, today, we wanted to discuss a really topical issue related to economics and social justice, and talk about uh, the responsibilities of government related to things like social spending and deficits and debt. So, uh, yeah, we, we uh, Bill, did you want to uh, elaborate on that any? Well, my only uh, thought going in is uh, uh, it brings back my very fond memories of my uh, MPA pursuit, my, uh, my getting the uh, Master in Public Affairs degree from the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton, which now, of course, is the Princeton School of International Public and International Affairs. Um, and they, one of the things that, that jumps out at me is how much I enjoyed the uh, government budgeting, or the federal budgeting class. Really? Budget, uh, federal budget management. And I thought that was the coolest thing, partly because it didn't need a lot of uh, calculus or, or lots of mathematics. It was more about policy and, and, and all of that. And it was taught by a former 
uh, head of the uh, uh, Congressional Budget Office, or at least the Office of Management and Budget. Really great course. And it was all about how this wonderfully elaborate uh, uh, structure uh, uh, exists in government for the orderly uh, creation of appropriations bills and authorization bills for every policy area in government, every department, et cetera, and how one approaches management uh, in the in the most elaborate and most sophisticated and most responsible uh, style year after year, and how this process allows for long-term planning gradually, et cetera. And that was pr- this was. 79 to 81. Okay. I was going to say, that sounds like a long time ago. Amen. Yes, because I don't think there's been a a full implementation of the full government budgeting process since. Uh, Maybe it occurred a bit in the 80s. If I know Jimmy Carter, he 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 probably saw to it that it was done to some degree in the late 70s. But what alas, do you mean by the um, full budgeting process, because the process oh, yeah. is still the same. It's just the decisions about what go into that process that has changed because yes. of how Congress has been behaving for a while. So, yes, um, uh, basically, the the Congress uh, and and the executive branch. No one, uh, you know, everyone, everybody implicated. I always say is a uh, the newspaper headline of. Of uh, the ideal newspaper headline, <laughs> everybody implicated. But uh, uh, the the idea uh, is is uh, is still sound, but frankly, uh, they they fail both in the uh, approach uh, and in the uh, substance. Um, now they usually use continuing resolutions uh, to create and pass new budgets for. Uh, most of the departments year after year. So all of the uh, assessment of the past year, you know, kind of total quality management approach, uh, all of the um, learning and then applying the learning to next year's budget, all of that is gone by the wayside because the, the Congress does it, you know, everything is grouped into these massive bills of a thousand or 2000 pages that basically just, uh, uh, you know, uh, as, as Paul said, uh, has said about everything, uh, and I would say about everything, uh, even if Paul doesn't, uh, we're kicking the can down the hill, kicking oh, the can, can down, down the road, road. Yeah, on everything. And Congress has unfortunately become very expert at that. Yeah. Every member of Congress is worried about some primary uh challenger from the right or the left then so they like well i can't i can't have my fingerprints on something where i've actually made some sort of compromise with the other side well i mean there's that but there is also the uh you know i mentioned this last time oh it's been a long time since we talked i mentioned this when was it i guess in november um since the citizens united decision that just the presence of unlimited corporate um donations now to political campaigns so you, ha- I mean, lobbyists have always played a role, unfortunately, in our in moving our budget, yeah. parts of our budget in one direction or another. But um, they now have more impact than before yeah. because they are allowed. Corporations are allowed to make much larger donations to political campaigns. 
But um, that also means that their lobbyists are are more empowered than they were in times past, which is not to say that, you know, budgeting always went perfectly in the past. It didn't. Uh, lobbyists have always have nearly always existed in our political process. But um, no. some of the uh, changes that have occurred in how campaigns are financed has had a massive impact on what has been happening in our politics. That has affected our economics, and it's something that I don't think people pay enough attention to. Right. That's right. You know, ask the average person if they even know what the Citizens United decision is or if they remember it. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. some other things have happened in our in our world since then, but it, it's, it was at that point that really, you know, you can look and see that about uh, that. I mean, there are other factors influencing our bipartisanship, but that uh, there was a big sea change really in what could get done and what couldn't uh, pass the point, you know, at that point of that decision. So I think that's important to take into account. Um, I do also want to mention that you're right, that everyone is implicated in the budget process, just for people who don't know the process. Uh, I mean, we do still follow the calendar of our fiscal year for the United States that our fiscal year runs from. You know, the end of September through uh, October of the next year and um, the Office of Management and Budget coordinates with the president and his Council of Economic Advisors to put together a budget. They send it to Congress. Congress debates it. It goes back and forth as it should. But, um, you know, in the meantime, you get a lot of stuff that ends up in the budget that might not. um, Gosh, there's just a lot of stuff that gets in there. But then you're correct that before the final budget I mean, you have the final budget, but then you also have, uh, you know, like the big spending bill that was just passed by Congress. Um, I have seen this mischaracterized in the press that all of it was the COVID relief bill, and it wasn't. They, they, no, they, the COVID relief bill was attached to a spending bill that was going to happen anyway to keep the government open. So um, th- those are really two separate entities because the COVID bill, even though they were signed together, it's a, the COVID bill the, was a stimulus package. It was fiscal policy to help our ailing economy. So when people are pointing to um, other things in that spending bill and saying, well, you know, it was irresponsible to put that in there, blah, blah, blah. What does that have to do with COVID relief? You know, some of that stuff was from the, the spending bill that was Going to be anyway, or that was being debated to uh, just to continue to fund government, and there were a lot of weird compromises that had to go on there. Like, if yeah. you've heard about this three martini tax deduction that corporations can take, um, you know that's something that the Democratic Party agreed to in exchange for the Republicans agreeing to expand unemployment payments. Um, so that is. Yeah, should that three martini uh, exception be in there from the perspective of solidarity and subsidiarity? No, it shouldn't, um, because it is something that's going to add six billion dollars to the deficit. So that's you know not really the most responsible place to put a tax deduction, um, because the people who are having the three martini lunches are not the most vulnerable in our society. Right. Yeah, it's, it's not not necessarily advocating for the least. Uh, um, for the least of these, yeah, that's not yeah. an example of the preferential option for the poor. <laughs> preferential option for the poor. Yeah, that's what I was groping for. It was yeah, yeah. Just to bring it back to some of the Catholic principles that oh. I talked about in the first episode that I talked to y'all. Um, 
And there, you can tell I'm from Texas. I forget that people don't use y'all much outside of. <laughs> no, I love it. I love I'm, it when people. I'm do. one quarter Texan. My my uh, my grandmother's family is actually from the San Antonio. Well, I mean, they they moved all around Texas. I shouldn't say that, but yeah, I, I do let the occasional y'all escape my. Uh, it's just so handy. I mean, English English lacks that separate, uh, you know, second person. So we really it fills it fills a necessary gap. It also um, lacks the all of y'all, the uh the all of y'all, all of y'all. Yeah, 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 the emphatic <laughs> form. Yeah. Being from New York, I'd I'd per, I hope that maybe we can intersperse the occasional y'all with the uh, New York dialect, which would be like use guys. Use guys. Use guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. That's not really how we talk um, yeah, in, in New York. In, but, in uh, movies from the mid-20th century, perhaps. Yeah, that maybe. Yeah. A little stereotyping there. Uh, oh geez. Um all right, so we've got we've got the preferential option for the poor on the table. We've got you know we've 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 taken a brief brief survey within the doors of the sausage factory that is uh, the budget process in the United States as it currently stands. Um, so there is that question of I mean you know a lot. It was bandied about enough that I saw some of it over the course of last year that uh, you know that we've the level of debt that the. United States is currently running is historically high, that it's comparable to what, at least on some basis, and you could debate the basis, yeah, I'm sure. It is. it is absolutely historically high. I mean, there's no debate about that. Sorry to interrupt, go on. <laughs> okay, that's fair. All right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always, that's that's why we, you know, we, we enjoy talking to experts in other fields that we're not experts in, because, you know, then I can learn things like that. Like, is is there debate about this? I don't know. I could conceive of there being debate about this. But, you know, if, if we're if it's pretty much agreed that we're just a comparable level of debt to what we were in 1945, or if, if not higher. I mean, the circumstances are completely different. And yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, there I, there's a lot I, I can say on this issue, but. I didn't know if you were leading up to a specific question, like about... Yeah, the, the question of at what point does it become res a responsibility of responsible government to to take that into account and say, is are we endangering, you know, who's going to suffer in case there is some sort of something, you know, and what form that would take is another question I'd like to ask, but mm -hmm. what, what could... What could go wrong and what responsibilities do, you know, governments have, you know, the government of the United States in particular, given our specific circumstances, mm -hmm. not to run those risks, to pull back from an edge. If we're getting close to an edge, what would that edge look like? What will falling over it look like? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So the problem is that um, we have been. Well, okay, let me back up. That in standard economic theory, and there, there's not a debate about this amongst mainstream economists, that... Um, you know, so what we've learned since the Great Depression is that in a recession, you know, if you do need to run a deficit, that's that's the time that you should be doing it. Because if yeah. your spending is geared towards things that are going to stimulate the economy. So an example of that would be the stimulus package that was just passed. And, you know, will it be enough to really get us on a sustainable growth path? That's still an open question. Um, you know, that is something that's under debate. But in a circumstance like that, it is fine to, or not fine, it's acceptable to run a deficit because it is designed mechanically to try to stimulate the economy. Um, if you then look to the other things in that spending bill, that like the three martini lunch, that is actually going to like end up hurting and increasing our deficit because those tax deductions there was no economist that was for this because it's going to add, um, it takes out $6 billion of potential tax revenue, you know, that could have been used to for something else in the budget. 
But um, if you look at what the spending, what the stimulus package was for on the COVID relief side, you know, payments to families, to households who have um, incomes under $75,000, an increase for, uh, you know, for SNAP programs, that's for food and other kinds of uh, help for, for people in poverty for children in particular in poverty and expansion of unemployment are not an expansion, a continuance of the unemployment insurance payments that we had from the last COVID relief package, um, you know, payroll assistance for small businesses, et cetera. So those kinds of things from a macroeconomic perspective, it's great that we're spending money on that. Um, the problem with our current debt and actually, just again, just to back up again for people who don't really, haven't really thought about this, a deficit is what happens in every fiscal year when government tax revenue is not, when government spending exceeds government tax revenue, you have a deficit. The debt is the accumulation of all past deficits. And a problem that we have had for a very long time is that counter to what uh, macroeconomic theory has said since the Great Depression? I mean, where it was established that if you're in an if you're in a crisis, mm -hmm. deficit spend, deficit spend on the things that will have the greatest impact to get you out of the crisis. So if you if you and not um, necessarily completely without limit either. Yeah, not without limit, but um, you know, uh, something else to add here is that if you look at you know payments to households, assistance for uh, you know households in poverty, food assistance, things of that nature, these are all designed to help to increase national household consumption. Private household consumption is the largest component of GDP for free market economies, um, and then private firm spending in the economy comes in second, but private household consumption is by far and away the largest component of GDP. I've, I've found that there are a lot of people in just out in the world who assume that government and private firm spending is the largest part of our GDP, and it absolutely is not. Household consumption is the biggest part. So in a recession, that's one of the big factors that falls. You know, because mm. people are, are being laid off all around yeah. us. And even they though our employment figures are recovering, it's not uh, a lot. Well, well, that's a whole separate issue that I could also talk about. Um, but um, the payroll assistance, that is also designed to help firms who are the second largest component of GDP. Their expenditures are the second largest component of GDP to meet payroll so that households won't have people who are experiencing chronic unemployment. Um, etc. And then there's there was a large part of the package that was geared towards payroll assistance for the transportation industry, just to try to, you know, help the airlines to keep people employed. Um, there was a large part of the package that was for Amtrak, but it was for the same purpose. It was to keep people who work in that industry employed. So for those kinds of things, there is a strong macroeconomic reason why you would provide that kind of assistance, why that spending is going to have a positive impact. Um, a, pro a problem that we have had, <laughs> to, to, so I can finally complete that thought, is that we have run deficits in times when we didn't need to. Yeah. Before we had this crisis, there was absolutely no reason for us to be running a deficit because right. the economy did was not in a recession. We were in a period, uh, you know, I mentioned this last time and I looked at the figures again. You can see it really clearly that even before COVID happened, we were in a, our GDP growth rate was flattening out. 
Um, and it, that had been happening for, for a while. However, we were still, GDP was still increasing at an increasing rate. There was not a reason, you know, when everyone was crowing about how well the economy was going at the same time in Congress, we were still passing budgets that had massive deficits that added tremendously to the debt. Um, the tax cuts that were passed under the current administration that caused our debt to explode uh, because for people, for U.S. economists, we had always maintained as long as we keep our debt to GDP ratio. I mean, that's the, really the thing to to take a strong look at uh, rather than just the amount of the debt itself, because people used to point to how large our debt was. But, you know, we could always say, but our economy is the biggest economy in the world. And um, our debt to GDP ratio is fine. We're not like Japan, where they exceeded 100 percent you know, quite a while ago. But now we are at that point. We're at that point where mm. our debt to GDP ratio has exploded. Our, our, the, our debt is growing faster than our GDP. And the reason why that is problematic is because, I mean, we're never going to pay the principal of the debt. We do, though, legally have our obligations to pay the interest to our bondholders because that's how we finance our debt. Um, most of the bondholders for our debt um, I know people want to believe that it's China holds all our debt, but they don't. The majority of it is owed to U.S. investors. Um, you know, in your 401k, you probably have U.S. Treasury bonds, bills and securities somewhere in there. So those interest payments to investors, the largest group of whom are U.S. investors, but also people around the world invest in our government sovereign bills debt. Yeah. and securities because it's a really safe investment so far because Before. we historically have always been able to make our interest payments and we probably will continue to do that but at the same time that you do that you know that is a, a, always a part of the budget it's always yeah. built into the budget but now it's taking up a bigger and bigger part of our federal budget so that means that then there will be less money available for education there's less money available for infrastructure there's less money available for, for anything else in the budget um, so from a Catholic social thought perspective, that is, you know, just from a macroeconomic perspective, it's a huge concern. From a Catholic social thought perspective, it's also a concern of, well, then what is going to happen for funding in those other crucial areas uh, in the future? And, you know, just to bring it back to the basic principle of Catholic social thought of human dignity you know, what is the responsibility of a policymaker in this situation of budgeting, which, you know, talking about budgeting, it doesn't sound that interesting, but, you know, there's, there's a huge moral and ethical component to it, um, in addition to the logistics of, you know, what do we allot funding to? But if you uh, put then the layer of questions that Catholic social thought requires us to ask, I was going to say suggest that we ask, but no, it requires us to ask of, um, you know, what of what what kind of expenditure is going to promote human dignity? Is it going to be a tax deduction for a three martini lunch or is it going to be expanded, uh, you know, after school food programs for children or something like that? Um, is it going to be expanded assistance to people living in poverty or is it going to be, you know, that you can deduct your private jet <laughs> from, uh, from your tax bill? Um, you know, using a different metric, you could say that, oh, well, no, the martini lunch, da, 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 it's good for these reasons. But um, from a Catholic social perspective, you always have to bring it back to 
does this increase human dignity or does it take away from human dignity? You know, not, not necessarily even for the people deducting their three martini lunch, but does it take something away? Does it disadvantage uh, the most vulnerable in society? If it, if it does, then again, that's a policy you shouldn't pursue. So our debt, again, it's that um, we had had a problem for a long time in the post-war period of running deficits when we didn't have to. The last administration to run a budget surplus in one year was uh, under the Clinton administration, yeah. in the 90s, which always, you know, tends to surprise people. Um, Does it? I mean, I lived through that era and I'm like, yeah, of course, that was the one time there was ever a question that we could run a surplus. <laughs> well, I would say, though, that like, you know, in the time in which we were growing up. Um, yeah, the 80s. I mean, the Reagan administration, there was, you know, a combination of social and military spending, a lot of military spending. Well, that, right, right. You know, but, I, but the rhetoric of the uh, of the Republican Party at the time was about fiscal responsibility. Yeah, ironically. Didn't actually practice that. It was, you know, right. Donald Rumsfeld is one of the people, was was one of the main promoters of the idea that deficits don't really matter because we're never going to pay the debt. Just meeting your interest payments matters. So, um, so, so deficits idea, matter because they increase their interest payment. Never mind. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I... Um, uh, but the, that that idea about fiscal responsibility, it does tend to be more attached to the Republican Party, or people still perceive it to be that way. But um, that's why I said it surprises people then to find that, no, it, our last budget surplus was under Bill Clinton. Because, you know, Democrats are characterized in the media as tax and spend, and the Republicans are characterized as being fiscally responsible. Although I'd say most people, yeah, maybe now in the last few years, people don't see it that way. But that was... Those were the two caricatures, I would say, um, you know, from the 80s onwards. But looking at the actual data, it's not really accurate. And and really, with this last tax cut that went through, um, that that really caused the debt to explode in a very irresponsible way. And it, it's a complete betrayal of that idea of fiscal responsibility. The economy was growing. There was no reason to have this tax cut that added tremendously to the debt. And um, it was a tax cut that was for a very particular part of the income brackets. And the part of it that was for the middle class, that was, you know, Catholic social thought would say that was a good measure, but that wasn't the part of it that added hugely to the debt. So, um, so from a Catholic social perspective, there are a lot of problems, <laughs> but there are also uh, solutions that come from just asking yourself some hard questions, which is, does this actually help human dignity or does it not? And then you have to walk through the, the specific details of how is this going to play out? But is this going to is this going to encourage people to do you know, all, all the unintended consequences of, of tax and fiscal policy? I mean, right, because to um, to deal with this issue into the long run, we will eventually, unless we're just going to continue to be completely irresponsible, you're going to have to raise taxes somewhere. And so then for the next group of policymakers, it becomes a question of, well, whose taxes are you going to raise? Right. Or what are you going to cut out of the budget? Right. right. But so far, there haven't been any cuts to the budget. Again, looking at that last spending bill, removing the part of it that was about COVID relief. Um, 
the, the expenditure. I mean, it was a humongous spending bill, $2.3 trillion. And not all of it, again, was about COVID relief. This was wow. the entire spending bill as a whole. Yeah. So, uh, so that is a concern for economists, whether they are uh, Catholic or not. <laughs> but right. it should be a concern for households across the United States because you need to recognize that this discussion about taxation has to happen <laughs> um, because we have legal obligations as a country to meet our debt payments, uh, to meet yeah. our interest payments. So it's, it's going to be a continuing issue. However, I would say that as long as our economic crisis continues, we do need to continue to have stimulus in the economy. Fiscal policy, which is done by Congress and the president, it does have a bigger impact than monetary policy. But monetary policy, which is done by the central bank because it isn't or it shouldn't be a politicized process. And right now it still isn't. Um, it, it is often easier to accomplish, but it doesn't have as large an impact and you can calculate this mathematically. I won't show you, show you the equations, um, although you, you might actually be interested in seeing them. <laughs> yeah. but, um, you could send them to Bill. You could send a link to Bill and we can incorporate it in the show notes at least. Okay. Um, the, uh, in the Great Recession, you know, that was a problem that we had and why part of our recovery was so slow. If Congress what, did not pass the level of fiscal stimulus that... Um, that had been recommended by Treasury, who are, who are working in conjunction with the central bank on trying to develop a good policy. Congress was very slow to pass the kind of fiscal stimulus that was needed. So we had to rely on monetary policy largely to, to try to help to stimulate the economy. So that's why the quantitative easing program was so massive and it went on for so long. It was because we were missing the fiscal, the right amount of fiscal stimulus at that point in time. But um, yeah, I just want to reiterate, monetary policy is performed by the central bank. It is not done by Congress and the president. Um, a mistake that people often make is, is to assume that it is because our central bank is called the Federal Reserve instead of the Bank of the United States, which would make more sense. But uh, because of its it name, a, people often assume yeah. the feds is the same thing as the Fed, and it is not. So I just want all those that. interesting 19th century reasons why we don't call it that. Exactly, because the original two banks of the United States collapsed and when we and we didn't have a central bank for a really long time until we had a series of massive bank failures in the early 1900s and then we we thought well, maybe we should get on the central bank bandwagon because, you know, England's had it since the 17th century. Scotland's had one since the 17th century. <laughs> um, and so we behind Scotland now. <laughs> so um so i just wanted to address that and i mean we could also talk about monetary policy which i know people have a lot of strange fear about and yeah i think that's yeah. because they never learned it well in their macroeconomics class and so if you just right. would uh yeah take a, our basic money banking and finance class it's not really that mysterious what they're, what they're doing. It's a bit technical, but it's not. It's not, yeah. it's not you know, that would be, I, th I think looking at our time budget, budget, um, I'm not sure that we can go down that, uh, down that path today. I wanted okay. to, I kind of wanted to wrap up if we just sort of, to, to sort of poke at this. I mean, the, the way you, where you've placed your emphasis is on 
the fact that we're running up larger and larger debts and larger debts relative to GDP is that it's simply servicing the debt squeezes out other items from the from the federal budget, and that's that's a miss. I mean, unless we just keep deficit spending more and more, then it's. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, oh, yes. Anyway, go on. <laughs> I was going to say just. just just to sort of, uh, and at one point we just peeked beyond the curtain and and mentioned in passing, there is, you know, it's certainly other countries have done it in the course of uh, human affairs, you know, failing to service the debt. What what sort of crisis, you know, could, could we look at that for just a second? Is that, I mean, obviously that's that's beyond a couple of horizons, but for the United for States as it currently this is. This is absolutely something we should never do is to default on our debt payments. I mean, Russia did it and they just uh, decided to start all over again. But when you do that, what happens is that you will lose your credit rating. You will lose any sense in the from the world economy that you're a safe investment. So it will be harder mm-hmm. in the future to have any... <laughs> People buy your bonds if they can't trust you. I mean, the kinds of countries who've gone that route recently, uh, Russia, mm-hmm. Venezuela, these are not countries that we want to mimic. Simulate. So, yeah. <laughs> so we are not going to do that anytime soon. It would just, uh, or hopefully ever, it would completely erode people's trust in the security of our economy. And, um, well, it would just absolutely damage our credit rating. Which we had never had really damaged before until, um, gosh, when was it? It was the last time we had a government shutdown. It did Mm -hmm. negatively affect our credit rating because it was assumed that, well, if this lingers on, you're not going to, you're going to have trouble meeting your bond payments. So um, that would be, that would signal disaster. It would be disastrous. It would signal just that so many things are wrong in our economy. And, and really what it also points to is that there's something very wrong in your government. So it, it, it indicates political instability or corruption of some kind. And, um, yeah, beyond, well, beyond the ordinary if, level. If we were to do that just because of our position in the world economy, it would cause a collapse of the stock market that would have knock-on effects to, uh, you know, consumer spending and, and just the health of our economy. So, I mean, that's that's the situation we are absolutely going to avoid um, mm-hmm. by whatever means necessary. Unless you yeah. get, you know, some absolutely crazy people, which, you know, that's not beyond, <laughs> I guess that's not beyond um, reality. Yeah. To, yeah. to think that, you know, some crazy people could be put in office who would try to go that route, but it would just, uh, that would be a disaster. So, yeah. so it would be very irresponsible. It would be, it would be very opposed to Catholic social thought to be that irresponsible because basically that, that's what it is. It would just be a level of extreme irresponsibility. Um, you know, something else I wanted to mention in conjunction with Catholic social thought and uh, this process is that, although we often talk about budgeting and the debt and deficit, in terms of solidarity and upholding the common good, it's important to remember that subsidiarity, which is, you know, mm-hmm. respecting the ability of local, of things to happen on the local level, people at the local level to achieve their own uh, plans, is that in a crisis situation, True solidarity is to uphold subsidiarity and to support it. And so a way to support it in an economic crisis is to provide some kind of assistance. So that's another set of questions that the policymaker 
should be asking, but I, you know, also voters should be asking as well. If, uh, you know, do are my elected officials, are they actually taking actions that uphold that help to support subsidiarity or are they taking actions that help to erode it? So, you know, providing um, assistance in an extreme emergency like the, the situation that we're in to uh, directly to households so that they can continue to participate in society. Because, you know, part of subsidiarity isn't just about, oh, I'm just going to go and do whatever I want. It's um, having the right conditions so that you can properly participate fully in society. There's a lot that goes into that. So, I mean, beyond just, you know, emergency assistance, there's a whole social structure that should go along with that. Um, so it's important to re recognize because it's in Catholic social thought, it's spelled out in the compendium of the Catholic church also that these are two concepts that support each other. And so the responsibility of a policymaker is to not just, only is to remember that part of the common good is to support subsidiarity. And so on that basis, you know, assistance to households, assistance to um, local communities is a good thing because it helps those communities and households at a basic level to, to continue to participate in society. You know, something that uh, Pope Francis writes about a lot, and so did Pope Benedict, is about the exclusion economic exclusion that occurs when you can't fully participate in society because you are, you know, maybe holding down multiple part-time jobs and you're just struggling yeah. to survive. Um, yeah. You know, and that's an important thing to also mention, I guess, as a footnote, when we talk about employment and unemployment in the United States, one of the uh, troubling trends that we've had since the 1990s is that, uh, yes, more people are employed than before, but more people have more part-time jobs than before. And that's especially true right now in our recovery. Our, our, we're trying to recover. We're still in right. the midst of trying to recover our economy. Um, so something, things have changed in our labor markets, definitely. But that's contributing to a lot of our other issues that were happening, you know, even before COVID hit. Um, but, but speaking of COVID, another important part of dealing with our economic issues, our economic crisis right now is... To, uh, is to deal with the pandemic because that is really the thing that caused our economy to go completely off the rails. And, um, you know, a way to help the debt issue is to let's tackle this pandemic uh, in a more focused way than we have up to this point in time. And, uh, you know, part of the relief bill did include funding for the states to help with the vaccination rollout, which is still just sputtering along um, for whatever reason at the state level. Um, but all of these things are necessary to provide uh, the, the proper structure for people at the household level to, to continue to participate in society, you know, because many of us are in quarantine, not fully participating in society, um, or in a more, we are participating in a more limited way than we were before. So um, I, I just wanted to talk about those few applied examples to our current situation, applying Catholic social thought to, to what is currently happening now in relation to that spending bill, which, you know, the bill was absolutely not perfect, but the parts of it that were designed for COVID relief you know, th those would be justified by Catholic social thought, but, uh, and are not a violation, are not necessarily a violation of subsidiarity. You know, you have to look into the details of 
How will the payments get to households? Um, what kind of oversight is there for the payroll assistance program? Because in the last round of it, the oversight was taken away and firms who absolutely did not need payroll assistance got a lot of funding that then took away funding from small businesses who really needed it. And that had a negative impact on employment at the local level. So um, there, there's, it's unfortunate that we don't have a lot more time because <laughs> talk about here in relation to solidarity and subsidiarity um, and, and the most recent encyclical, et cetera. We didn't even get to talk about uh, money and inflation, but. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's a lot that we could do and, uh, if you were willing, perhaps we could make this something of a of a recurring feature to to because uh, I mean that's you know economics is one place where we're at the frontier between science and religion every day you know science and morality science and religion it's 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 all woven together in a very uh, tight tight way in economics. Absol- well, absolutely, and I think that's something that um, a lot of economists, if they've never studied history of economic thought, don't know that political economy arose out of moral philosophy. Right. You know, Adam Smith was a moral philosopher and uh, Sir James Stewart, who wrote his, the first book on uh, economics as its own science, um, he had studied jurisprudence. So it arose out of these basic ethical questions about, well, Mm. you know, (laughs) life can be pretty horrible, but we can't, we have the ability to make it better. How are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and looking at the deeper ethical issues attached to that. Uh, but no, I'd be willing to come back and talk again. Obviously, I have a, a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts about these things, but also just a lot of basic economic knowledge that that I, I think it is important for people to know because yeah. and to think about in this context, which people right. you know, this is one of those watertight compartments that uh, many many people recognize we tend to do maybe in America as, at least as much as anywhere else, where we try to separate what we do on Sunday from what we do the rest of the week. And that's yeah, absolutely, absolutely not how we're going to live. Assume that, um, and it's because of economists that I think people assume this, that like the law of supply and demand, it's just completely, the laws of supply and demand are immutable, but you know, what is supply and what is demand? They're made up of choices made by human beings, which I think exactly. I, I probably mentioned that in my first episode, but, um, but, but yeah. But the there's reiteration. <laughs> From the church's perspective, but also from the origins of economics, all of these are moral issues. So they're important to discuss in a moral context. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating to watch these watch these link up. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.